This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Welcome to this media call regarding new research on the North Korean nuclear threat. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND, and joined by three of the authors of the paper Bruce Bennett, Adjunct International and Defense Researcher at RAND. Bruce Bechtel, Professor of Political Science at Angelo State University and formerly with DIA, and Bruce Klingner, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and also formerly DIA as well as the CIA. Uh, yes, we have three Bruces. They have taken to referring to themselves as West Coast Bruce, Texas Bruce, and East Coast Bruce, but I think we'll stick with uh, last names to the extent we can for this call. They also have four co-authors who are based in Seoul, who will be conducting a separate call uh, for journalists in that time zone. Right now, we'll have a few introductory remarks from the three Bruces, starting with Bruce Bennett, and then we'll turn to questions in 15 minutes or so. So, West Coast Bruce, Bennett, over to you. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to share some slides here that uh, will allow me to summarize some of the key findings of the report. We're going to talk about countering the risks of North Korean nuclear weapons. This is an important subject right now. Let me start right off quickly and say, if you look at the six North Korean nuclear weapon tests, this chart shows the dates, the estimated weapon yields, and what would happen in terms of fatalities and injuries if these were detonated in either Seoul or Manhattan. The point here is... These are really big deals. The numbers that you see there, especially as we get to the larger yields, are just very, very large. They make COVID look like a small deal. And we have to worry, this is from a single nuclear weapon. We also know that uh, North Korea has many nuclear weapons. We don't know exactly how many. In the report, we estimate these kind of numbers. Certainly by 2027, the numbers could easily be in the 100 to 200 range. And since it's important to respond to the most serious threat, we've used roughly 200 as the target that we have talked about in the report. Now, people will say, well, how do you get so many? Lower estimates tend to assume that there are only one or two uranium enrichment facilities, but we've seen at least four facilities potentially identified We just don't know the capacity. There are just too many uncertainties here. Why is the Kim regime pursuing this kind of number of nuclear weapons? Well, the regime is very concerned about regime survival, concerned in terms of both external threats and internal threats. Nuclear weapons tend to make it look empowered. The regime is very interested in achieving North Korea-controlled unification. And interestingly, while many people will say this is by war and therefore the North thinks they can't do it, that's not what Kim Jong-il reportedly told his son just before he died, uh, before Kim Jong-il died. He said unification through war has no meaning. If war were to occur, such an event will set us back several hundred years. So they're looking to do it coercively, and in particular, to break the ROC-U.S. alliance, dominate the ROC militarily, and exploit the ROC's economic power. But that's not the end state that North Korea apparently perceives, and we believe that North Korea also wants to be a great regional power 
in part because they've experienced not just decades, but thousands of years of Chinese domination, which they would like to overcome. So what has Kim Jong-un done with regard to the nuclear program? Well, in May of 2018, he met with the South Korean National Security Advisor, told him he was prepared to negotiate nuclear dismantlement of his program, and that in the process, he was going to suspend all missile and nuclear weapon tests. It's not until April that he qualifies that and says he's only going to stop long-range missile tests. But before that, he said he would stop all missile tests. Then in April 2018 was the Panmunjom Declaration between South and North Korea, where both countries agreed to fully implement all past agreements. And one of the past agreements was the 1992 Joint Denuclearization Declaration, where North and South Korea agreed not to test, manufacture, produce, possess, store, deploy, or use nuclear weapons, and several other points there. Obviously, North Korea was violating this agreement the day it was signed. It has been violating it since. And now, after Kim Jong-un in April 2018 says he's going to fully implement it, he's violating it again. In addition, in January 2019, in his New Year's address, Kim said he had stopped producing nuclear weapons and would do no proliferation. But what we know is that he hasn't stopped. So what do we need to do? U.S. strategy has focused heavily on, we'll just get North Korea to negotiate away their nuclear weapons, and that'll solve the problem. Unfortunately, that hasn't worked. In fact, North Korea has gone the opposite way. So now we need to focus more on deterrence. A well-known Roman uh, author said, if you want peace, prepare for war. This doesn't mean go and start waging a war, but it means that if the adversary thinks you can defeat him, he's likely not going to start a war. We need to think about it from that perspective, from a deterrence perspective, and say, if he thinks the cost of a particular action, such as war against the South, is going to be greater than the benefits, you're likely going to deter him. And that's the approach that we need to be taking increasingly as North Korea increases the size of its nuclear threat. That means in terms of cost, removing the regime, and in terms of the benefits that we're trying to deny, we need to have the ability to defeat North Korean nuclear attacks. So what do we mean by regime removal? There is one official U.S. document that lays this out, the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review, which says there is no scenario in which the Kim regime could employ nuclear weapons and survive. We basically threaten, the United States threatens, that if North Korea uses nuclear weapons, the regime will be removed. Well, that's challenging. We would have to find and eliminate the regime, and that requires capabilities beyond what the U.S. apparently has today, stronger ability to locate them and adequate precision standoff strikes. The problem is that if you're trying to get the Kim regime where they would likely be if they used a nuclear weapon, which is in a deep underground facility, conventional weapons won't do the job. 
The National Academy several years ago said that those facilities can only be held at risk of destruction with nuclear weapons. Fortunately, the U.S. is now building a low-yield nuclear weapon that will penetrate the ground and because of that will create the equivalent of a weapon yield, a power of the explosion, that's 15 to 25 times what you would get with just a surface burst of a nuclear weapon. And that's important to limit fallout that would be produced. More generally, if we want to defeat the North Korean attacks, we've focused a lot of our effort historically on missile defense, stopping the North Korean missiles en route. We need to also be thinking more about how we defend, either by protecting or dispersing assets. But increasingly, the U.S. is now talking about operating earlier before North Korea launches. Even General Hyten talked recently about how to defeat and defend left of launch first before the North launches. Now, that's risky because that is to some extent preemptive and could destabilize the situation. But it indicates that as the number of North Korean nuclear weapons grows, we need to be more proactive. Now, I believe and we believe as a group that you can't just engage North Korea with sticks and threaten them. Uh, That hasn't worked so far. So we need to offer carrots. For example, I think we ought to invite North Korean graduate students come to U.S. universities. Those students who speak English well enough probably largely come from very senior North Korean families, and we'd love to see them in the U.S. and learning about what the U.S. is really like, because North Korea really doesn't seem to understand us very well. I think President Biden ought to challenge Kim and sell him something like, a lot of my people are saying that you're not the all-powerful supreme leader, and I need to prove them wrong. Give up just one nuclear weapon to demonstrate you really have the power to do so. Kim has never given up even a single nuclear weapon, and we think it would be important to challenge him to do so. He may not be able to do that or be willing to do that, and if he's not, negotiations are going to be very difficult. Finally, we need to have more sticks. That could include challenging China to interdict the ship-to-ship transfers and the sea ships, um, and then threatening that if China won't do it, the U.S. Navy will do it. Let me conclude by saying that the U.S. also needs to be more proactive on information operations. We need to talk about why the Hanoi summit failed, that Kim basically wanted more than he was willing to offer. We need to talk about what life in the West is like and make sure North Koreans, especially the elites, know about this. We should never drop human rights. This is an important part. And we need to turn on North Korea and say, North Korea keeps saying that the United States is so hostile. Really, who is more hostile? Who claims that the other side is their eternal enemy? who claims that they're responsible for all of their problems. That's not us. That's Kim Jong-un. And many people will say at this point, gee, we ought to have a peace treaty with North Korea. Well, if we're going to do that, let's get a peace treaty that also covers the North Korean-initiated Cold War. No more anti-U.S. indoctrinations. After all, can you have peace if you have that? 
And let's get North Korea down to a number of nuclear weapons, which may be adequate for them to have regime survival, but does not allow them to leverage more broadly, either to achieve unification or other objectives. So these are some of the kinds of recommendations that we make in the report. I'll halt there and uh, turn to my colleagues and let them make some introductory remarks. Texas Bruce, do you want to take over? Sure. As our uh, moderator said, my name is Bruce Bechtel. I'm coming to you live and direct from beautiful West Texas, San Angelo, Texas, on the campus of Angelo State University, Cornell on the Concho. West Coast Bruce, my good friend Bruce Bennett, talked about the nukes. And um, another good friend of mine is here. It's good to be among friends, Bruce Klinger. He's going to talk about strategic issues, which is good. Um, I'm going to talk about the missiles. Bruce Bennett asked me to talk about that last night, and I'm happy to do so. So let me first say this before I talk about nukes or missiles, and that's the North Korea's nuclear program and its missile program is not the one problem. It's simply a symptom of a bigger problem, which is the rogue state behavior of the DPRK. And I think that that one of the things that this new publication talks about is that, as Bruce Bennett said at the end of his presentation, near the end of it, when he talked about such important things as human rights, and we address proliferation in there too, which is also hugely important. So, what has North Korea done recently with its ballistic missile arsenal? Without talking about specific systems, which I can do a little bit, or as much as anybody wants me to, they have improved their systems both in range and accuracy. The missile that we saw tested, for example, a couple of weeks ago that everybody was saying was a reaction to President Biden coming in, if it had happened four months ago, it wouldn't have been a reaction, but since it happened now, it is a reaction. If there had been a U.S. exercise, it would be a reaction to that exercise, and if there wasn't, it would not. Everybody with me on that? So as we saw with the test of their missile that is very similar to the Russian Iskander, which was used in Syria, has been used against the Azerbaijanis by the uh, Armenians, for example, with some real flaws, I might add. And, uh, and they actually had a battery of those things in Syria, in Damascus during the Civil War. They've, they've since given that battery, I believe, to the uh, Syrians, who probably are the ones that sold that or gave the plans for that to the North Koreans. But at any rate, if you look at that missile, what that missile does is it, it conveys part of the threat that we haven't talked about a lot. We did in this study, though. Americans are very concerned about North Korea's ICBMs. That's, that's a legitimate threat. But what we should also be talking about is how North Korea has improved the numbers and the accuracy and the range of their short-range missiles that can attack any node in South Korea. And that's what this missile we saw tested the other day, a couple of weeks ago, is so important. In. And that's something they've been working on even as the talks with President Trump were ongoing. They've also been improving the numbers of their missiles. So we're talking at least 200 of their IRBM, Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile, the Musudan missiles, along with about 50 launchers, probably several dozen of their ICBM, according to a recent defector that I spoke to that gave me specific numbers, and launchers that go along with that. 
And there's some other things that we talk about a bit because we were asked to, but that I think are very important to consider. Um, we, we often see in the press this whole thing of liquid fuel versus solid fuel. And okay, got it. Um, solid fuel, it is true, is less volatile than liquid fuel. Because a missile is liquid fuel doesn't mean it can't be transported anywhere on a flat surface. In fact, that's what the North Koreans do. In fact, we saw a recent launch about uh, four years ago where they actually pulled their missiles out of tunnels already on their transport and erector launchers, already loaded, and fired them off the East Coast toward Japan. And the missiles landed in Japan's EEZ. So what I'm saying here is solid fuel missiles, liquid fuel missiles, the big concern for us should be how many do they have? How well do we know the sites that they're at, even though they're likely to move them? That's the kind of things we should be concerned about more than the fuel. And the final thing about the missiles I would like to say is, and the two Bruce's know that this is something very near and dear to my heart, proliferation. If you see it today in North Korea, you'll see it in Iran tomorrow. And that includes everything from Scud B's, which is the original missile that they started making themselves, all the way up to what we now know to be the Hwasan 12, 14, and 15, which is to say an IRBM they built, and then they put another stage on top of it to make it an ICBM, and uh, and now we have two ICBMs. I know that sounds very simple. It's it's not rocket science. Well, it is rocket science. It's just not complicated rocket science. But uh, So that's essentially what the North Koreans have done. But to take that one step beyond, they're now helping Iran to build the same exact missile. And the first one was launched, this is very important, launched on May 13th, 2017, uh, which, by the way, was the same day that my daughter graduated from the University of Iowa. It's key here. Then they launched... Two ICBMs within months of that, both of which could hit the West Coast, at least, of the United States. And that's the other thing I'd like to talk about very briefly. We have seen among pundits this big argument about re-entry capability or no. The North Koreans have shown three times now with ICBMs that they very probably have that re-entry capability. We had one report that came out of Japan that said the missile was on fire when it was landing, well, no kidding. Everyone realizes that the Earth's atmosphere is basically fire, right? So as long as that doesn't get to the payload, that is to say the missile for a real live nuke missile, it doesn't matter. You know, John Glenn, when he circled the Earth the first time, when most of them weren't born, well, the three Bruce's were, but not most of you, his vehicle was on fire all the way down to the ocean when it hit. So just something to think of and also understand they have reentry capabilities for every single other type of missile that they've ever tested. So why would they not have it for an ICBM? I think it's only prudent for us to assume that they do have it and hope that they don't have feel they have to prove that to us. And uh, with that, I'll just uh, pass it back to uh, the moderator. Great. And I'll pass it on to uh, Bruce Klingner. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, and, and thanks to Rand for the opportunity. I, I've always looked forward to the opportunity when we had the three Bruces on the same event so we, we can just enjoy the confusion during the question and answer period. 
Um, one thing I, I've found in the 28 years that I've been working on North Korea is there's often been a, a tendency by experts even to underestimate or downplay North Korea's capabilities. We've seen that with nuclear weapons, with missiles, and more recently with cyber capabilities, which I've, I've been working on a paper and I've been amazed at how much North Korea has done on cyber. So we've seen that in the in the 90s where some dismissed that North Korea had plutonium uh, fissile material for nuclear weapons. Uh, then we saw dismissing the Bush administration's uh, discussion of a uranium-based nuclear weapons program, that the building that the, the Israelis did, uh, built or bombed in 2007 was a nuclear reactor being built with the assistance of North Korea, Uh, whether North Korea had the ability to miniaturize a warhead for a missile, uh, whether their ICBMs could actually reach the continental U.S., and now, as as Bruce Bechtel has said, sort of whether the reentry vehicle could could survive. So, but each of those has been seen to be a capability that North Korea had, but people denied it until the evidence became so overwhelming. So in the last couple of years, what uh, we've seen with Kim Jong-un is he's really accelerated and expanded the nuclear and missile programs of his father and his grandfather. So again, without going into the nomenclature and the ranges, uh, you know, if we just take a step back and see what North Korea has accomplished in the last few years, they've accelerated the development, production and testing of nuclear weapons and missiles. They've created a new generation of more advanced more accurate and survivable missiles for all ranges from those that can target South Korea and Japan to our bases in Guam and the continental U.S. They've developed mobile land-based and sea-based missile systems that are harder to detect and target. They've produced several different kinds of solid fuel missiles that reduce the time necessary to launch, uh, and that reduces the warning time that the U.S. and its allies would have. They've developed short-range missiles that can evade or make it more difficult for allied missile defense systems to engage. Uh, And they have ICBMs that can reach all of the continental U.S. with nuclear weapons. Uh, And they're now working on uh, multiple reentry vehicle capabilities. And Kim said that was one of their goals during a speech earlier this year. And that's very worrisome because we only have a limited number, 44 ground-based interceptors in Alaska and uh, California to defend the continental U.S. And the U.S. has said it will launch multiple, perhaps four, of these interceptors at each incoming warhead or missile. And so if North Korea now has missiles or will have missiles that can have multiple warheads, that will entail more of our interceptors being required to go after them. Also worrisome from one of their recent parades is it looks like now they can indigenously produce these very, very large mobile erector launchers for ICBMs, whereas before they were limited to six very large Chinese logging trucks that they had imported. More launchers means more ICBMs can go out into the field for an initial fire rather than just a limited number of firing and having to go back to reload. So those two developments risk overwhelming U.S. missile defense systems for the continental U.S. They've also, over the years, practiced missile launches under wartime conditions. They fired multiple missiles from multiple locations throughout the country, They've simulated and they've declared that they were simulating nuclear airburst attacks over South Korea and Japan, and they've fired salvo launches of several missiles simultaneously. So all of these new weapons or new weapons developments, they uh, overcome the shortcomings of the predecessor, and they now pose a far greater threat to the U.S. and its allies. And the evolving nuclear and missile forces 
increasingly provide the regime with the ability to conduct a surprise preemptive attack, either tactical or strategic, uh, a retaliatory second strike, as well as battlefield counterforce attacks. And Pyongyang's continuing the development of these programs beyond what would be a necessary requirement for deterrence suggests the regime is striving for a true warfighting capability and a strategy. So it puts all of us at, at greater risk. It also undermines the effectiveness of existing war plans, such as on, on Plan 5015. And it also raises the potential for greater regime willingness to engage in even more provocative behavior towards South Korea and Japan. And it could inhibit the U.S. response if we feel that now our nation is uh, under a threat of nuclear attack. And we saw that the casualty numbers that uh, could ensue, and we saw Bruce Bennett show that earlier. It could also lead our allies to increasingly question our deterrence, our extended deterrence guarantee, the nuclear umbrella. As many Koreans and, and Japanese have said, would you really trade San Francisco for Seoul or Toledo for, for Tokyo? So as North Korea has continued to develop the ability to directly attack the continental U.S., we're hearing more concerns and whether that would either lead to either of those nations pursuing nuclear weapons program or seeing that the alliance is no longer a guaranteed defense for them and do they become more accommodating to North Korea. So I'll leave it at that and I'll, I'll look forward to your questions. Very good. Thank you, all three Bruce's. Perhaps we could start with a question from Sangman Lee at uh, Radio Free Asia. Yeah, this is uh, Sangmin from Radio Free Asia. I'm so glad to meet three Bruce through this Zoom. I've been talking with you so many times by phone, but this is the first time to meet your face. So I'm so thankful. Yeah, I have a question about the um, possibility that North Korea launch a submarine ballistic missile. Uh, yesterday, the spokesperson of the Republic of Korea Defense Ministry said that uh, ROK military is closely cooperating the, with the U.S. intelligence authority to keep on keep eye on the related trend, which means uh, there is a movement of submersible missile test stand barge in shipyard of Shimpo, North Korea, so which was detected by commercial satellite. And also yesterday, a Korean media uh, report that uh, North Korea is ready to roll out new 3,000-ton submarine. So based on this movement, it looks like uh, North Korea going to launch from uh, like a submarine uh, launch ballistic missile. So I want to know what do you think about the possibility of that North Korea going to uh, launch such as SLBM to pressure by the administration. Thank you. Who like looks like I saw uh, uh, Bruce Bechtel, and then we could go to Bruce Bruce Klingner. Questions about the submarine that I think are important, um, and this starts with the Shinpo, and that's that submarine launches a mid-range ballistic missile, and people talk about it that way, which is fine. But when you're talking about a submarine, um, a, a submarine launch ballistic missile, an SLBM. You really got to talk about where the submarine can get that missile off from, right? So when people th would always talk about the MRBM and that missile, I'd say, no, no, no. Don't think of it that way. Think of it as how far can the submarine get before it can launch that missile? Because if it can get close enough, for example, it could attack Guam or Hawaii. That would be very likely what they would do. Now, having said that, 
the Shinpo was it was a smaller sub, three thousand tons, I think. Um, it could launch one missile and only one. So uh, if that missile um, exploded as it was coming out of the sail, it could damage a submarine, and of course, it wouldn't hit its target. And by the way, that happened. <laughs> that actually happened during one of their tests, although they have had several successful tests subsequently since then. The new class, which looks like an improved Romeo class, one hopes that they have improved the loudness of the Romeo as well and gotten rid of it because the Romeo class submarine is noted for being a very loud submarine. And what all my Navy friends always tell me, including intelligence officers, gets back to what Bruce Klinger was talking about earlier, and that's a lot of analysts tend to downplay North Korea's capabilities. And we keep constantly hearing from the Navy guys, oh, they'll never be able to get a sub out of port and sneak it out to the open sea. I would just say, please be very careful about saying something like that. Because uh, there are certainly no absolutes in the world. If if that sub is able to break out a port at Shinpo, which the club, which the original sub was named for, and get out to the open sea, that is a real threat to us, especially if you get several of those subs, because uh, it does carry three missiles instead of one. It is. I don't know. Sangmin, if you were able to, uh, I'm sure you looked at the pictures of how big that sub is. It's huge. Um, so uh, I think that this is a legitimate threat. Should it be able to get through South Korea's defenses, naval defenses, and United States defenses, which are, of course, closer to the United States. And, I, you know, I point this out to my friends, and I'll just leave it here. You know, many people talk about North Korean submarines this, North Korean subs that. Well, a North Korean sub in 2010, on the Marine Corps birthday, by the way, November 10th, sank a South Korean Corvette. They blew it in half with a bubble jet torpedo. Where were the naval defenses then? So I would just say, depending on what capabilities this sub has, depending how well the North Koreans have adjusted things on it, like its loudness, since the Romeo class is noted for being very loud, and depending how successful they are with launching SLBMs out of this sub, this could be legitimately a new threat to the United States that we really need to take notice of. Excellent. Bruce Clinton. Yeah, I'd say uh, two parts, the, the launch and then sort of the SLBM capabilities. Um, on, on the launch, we really don't know. Um, you know, I was an imagery analyst for many years, and a lot of activity that uh, you know, even with using classified systems, we didn't know what it meant. So we we could keep track of it. And if you read the Thirty Eight North and the Middlebury uh, Monterey Institute reports, so a lot of it, you know, will identify activity and then conclude we're not sure if this is maintenance or uh, a signal to us just to get us nervous, or whether it's preparations for launch. So. It really, we don't know until they actually launch whether they'll do it. Uh, you know, we expect that North Korea will do a major provocation in the first year of Biden's administration because they've always done that with new U.S. and South Korean administrations. They could do incrementally larger or, or stronger provocations, work up the ladder, or they could just jump right to a nuke and missile test as they did with Obama and, and with Trump. So again, we don't know, but we expect that 
uh, an SLBM would not be as provocative as uh, another ICBM test, particularly the, the huge one they paraded last October, uh, or a new test. But they're going to do something, you know, and they have to test this for developmental testing. So it's really just a matter of, of when, not if. On the submarine capabilities, you know, a successful SLBM is a threat to South Korea. I, I focus more on sort of the near-term threat to the peninsula rather than them traveling across the, the Pacific to the U.S. And right now, the, both the West and East Coast flanks of South Korea are exposed. The current missile systems that South Korea has on its uh, ships uh, can defend against anti-ship missiles, but not ballistic missiles. They're discussing with the U.S. procuring missiles, the SM-3, SM-6, that could defend against ballistic missiles, but they don't have it deployed. So from the east and west coast, South Korea is vulnerable. Now, one would think, well, North Korean subs are very noisy. They couldn't possibly be a threat. Well, as Bechtel pointed out, this Chonan was sunk, uh, a modern South Korean naval vessel in South Korean waters. Uh, and then also in, I think it was 2015, uh, both U.S. and South Korean officials were saying 70 percent or the, the North Korean subfleet was out and the U.S. and South Korea didn't know where 70% of them were. Now, one would think we would keep closer tracks of the missile launching submarines rather than torpedo firing missiles, but that sort of shows that even these old noisy subs can get out. So it would be a, a threat, you know, but the, the much larger threat would be the land-based short and medium-range missiles. So provocation, yep, they're going to do it. We just don't know when. Okay. Uh, Sangman, do you uh, have a follow-up? Uh, I have an additional question. So um, a few days ago, the, the Christopher Ford, the former Assistant Secretary of State uh, of uh, Non-Preparation, mentioned that he said the main reason why North Korea developed ICBM is to decouple America from the South Korea. So which means when they North Korea increased the threat level of by ICBM, the United States feel threatened, and then they're trying to may think about, is it okay to be side with South Korea because uh, uh, North Korea may attack the United States city like LA? So I want to know, what do you think about his comment about the reason why North Korea developed ICBM? Just to decouple America from South Korea, or yeah, what do you think about that? Who would like that? Uh, Bruce Bennett. I think we have to recognize that North Korea is not anxious to fight an intercontinental nuclear warfare with the United States. But if it can coerce the United States, if it can target the United States, that's going to cause many people in the United States to worry and undercut, to some extent, our extended deterrence, the nuclear umbrella we've offered our allies. I think that's their objective. I think they want to undercut our nuclear umbrella. They want to raise questions, and they're already raising questions with our allies. Uh, we see some amount of discussion in both Korea and Japan about whether they can count upon the U.S. nuclear weapons or whether they need their own. You'll remember I noted one of North Korea's objectives is to break the U.S. Rock Alliance. And this would be one component of them doing so if they can get uh, the South Koreans to believe that the U.S. is no longer prepared to provide a nuclear umbrella. In the end, it's really up to an American president. If North Korea threatens to fire a nuclear weapon, an ICBM at a U.S. city, 
will a president take the chance of targeting North Korea in retaliation to North Korean nuclear weapon use against South Korea? Or will he withdraw that kind of activity? We don't know. Uh, it would depend upon the president, and that may be enough of a question to undermine our alliance. That seems to be where Kim is going in terms of his efforts. Could I just weigh in there to, to ask what we're speculating about what a, president, a U.S. president might do or not do? There is currently uh, a policy review being undertaken by the Biden administration regarding North Korea. Could, could you all weigh in on uh, where you think that might be headed and perhaps even where you think it should be headed? Uh, Bruce Klingner. Yeah, there's, uh, I think, some knowns and unknowns about where the Biden administration policy will will go. Uh, I mean, he said, or his officials have said, it'll be totally new or it'll be very new. I think it'll have a lot of consistency with successive or predecessor uh, administrations. There's only so many tools in the toolbox. We may apply them differently or emphasize one tool over the other. Uh, but they tend to be sort of a comprehensive integrated strategy using all the instruments of national power. So it may emphasize diplomacy over pressure or vice versa, but it's, it's not going to be something startlingly new that no one has ever thought of before. You know, I think some of the knowns are, well, first of all, the biggest difference I think will be towards South Korea. Uh, we're seeing a, a difference in attitude and treatment of our allies by the Biden administration from the Trump administration. Uh, we're not going to see the insulting language that we saw uh, previously. And we've just had the completion of these uh, special measures agreement negotiations with South Korea, where we saw, we're accepting an incremental rather than exorbitant exponential increase in, in post-nation support. And so the Biden administration is going to focus on working with our allies to deal with not only the North Korean, but the Chinese threat and other regional threats in Asia. You know, Biden has also said he'll return to a traditional view of diplomacy of a bottom-up approach, where uh, you only get a summit if you have progress at the working level towards an actual agreement. Uh, and I think that's the, the right approach. You know, we're also seeing a continued emphasis on denuclearization as an endpoint, rather than as some in the Korea Watcher community have talked about, is sort of abandoning that and going for a lower bar uh, requirement of uh, arms control, just cap the problem. I think two of the big unknowns of what we'll have under Biden administration, we're waiting to see. The first would be what would be the acceptable parameters of an agreement with North Korea? We don't know. You know what, what will we offer and what would we require to be done for each of the steps and what would be the linkages and the timeline? That, I mean, that's the really the big question. And we don't know yet. The other thing would be how strongly will the Biden administration enforce sanctions, uphold U.S. law, which U.S. administrations have always underachieved on? We've never fully enforced our own laws, let alone U.N. resolutions. There are things we can be doing to China that uh, we've pulled our punches on. So, you know, Blinken and others have talked about, you know, maybe new sanctions, new pressure. But administrations have talked a big game on pressure, but always underachieved. So that's the other big question. Either. Other Bruce like to weigh in? Uh, Bruce Bechtel? Yeah, I mean, I thought what uh, uh, Bruce Bennett, excuse me, uh, Bruce Cleaner said was important and, and very interesting. I would just say a lot of the stuff that I've seen written by people that this administration is listening to have left out two key things human rights and proliferation. 
And the proliferation is very important and gets back to what uh, Bruce Klinger was saying about enforcing sanctions. You know, we've gone at there and, you know, and I'm going to use gestures here. If you look at Democrats and Republicans and whether you think they're good presidents or bad presidents, it really doesn't matter. When they talk about North Korean policy, they're always doing this. Oh, no, no, his part, no, it. And they're both right because U.S. presidents, really since the agreed framework in 1994, have managed to somehow screw up our North Korean policy in one way or another, all of them. The last one, but the one before him and the one before him and so on. So I think it's very important to recognize that if we have sanctions on, we should enforce them. There's at least, what I've been told, a dozen more banks in China, up to and including the Bank of China, that if we don't put sanctions on them, we could fine them like we did banks in Europe, like we did Deutsche Bank, by the way, in Europe with Iran. We haven't done that yet with North Korea. Uh, you know, uh, going after a small bank right on the border with, with uh, Shinwiju is a good thing, but it's a teeny tiny step. Banks in Singapore, for example, front companies in Malaysia, we have yet to see that stuff, even though those sanctions are in place. So that's important. I think, like Bruce said, more sanctions, okay, you know, the sanctions we have, that we have, the UN has, that the Rock and Japan have, that the EU has, these are all good sanctions. They need to be enforced better. That's a key. Will the Biden policy do that? I don't know. And let me give you one small example. How long have we known that North Korea was selling Scud missiles to Egypt? I can answer that question. It was in a journal article I wrote back in 2007. It finally got addressed by the U.S. government in 2017. It's only 10 years. We knew about it all along, Republicans, Democrats, everybody. Let's hope that the Biden administration takes that proliferation very seriously because it, it causes two huge problems for our policy. One is it causes instability and violence, which by the way is the subtitle of my last book, to occur in regions such as the Middle East and Africa, which goes against our allies, including Israel in, in the Middle East but others as well. Saudi Arabia, for example, is, is the Houthis are firing North Korean-made Scud Seas, souped-up Scud Seas that are hitting Riyadh and so on. So that's one big factor. But the second thing is, despite sanctions, and it gets, this gets back to what Bruce Klinger said, they're making around $2 billion a year out of the Middle East and hundreds of millions out of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa mostly, but also Libya and Egypt. That money goes straight back through front companies and through banks they launder it through to the regime. And it helps to pay for their military programs and, and to support the elite. Unless or until American policy includes cutting off the head of that whole network, which is going after these banks, it's going to continue to go on. And it's going to continue to present huge challenges to our foreign policy that nobody wants to talk about. And, you know, we don't have Greg Scarlett to here or Bob Collins, but they can talk about this better than me. I think much like Ronald Reagan, I would, I would espouse, as he did during the Cold War, that uh, human rights is a national security issue, and there's nobody 
who violate human rights more than the regime in North Korea. And I'll just leave it there. Senate, anything from you on this? Okay. Uh, Sangman, do you have uh, another question? Okay, so I have a question to uh, Bruce Bennett. So uh, you mentioned that during your um, presentation that the negotiation is not achieved such a goal to uh, North Korea denuclearization. So now it's time to focus on deterrence. So then you example show us some example like uh, some attack under the ground, something like that. So and also you suggest that um, we'd better focus on left launch, which means the before they launch, we're going to take the missile. So do you think that it can be possible for current, current administration focus on that uh, deterrence more other than negotiation? Because um, as we know, new administration going to focus on diplomacy with alliance. So how do you think is it, is it feasible to focus on deterrence rather than negotiation? I, I think the thing that we have to recognize is that these aren't two separate issues, that if you have significant capabilities and you can deter the opponent, they're much more likely to be willing to negotiate. If North Korea thought that its nuclear weapons were a liability and not an asset, which they would probably think if we had a really extensive defensive and offensive capability against them, they're going to be much more willing to negotiate. So I think we need to create a change in the environment to try and convince North Korea that these nuclear weapons are not their ultimate guarantee of regime survival, but are rather their guarantee of regime destruction. That is what the U.S. declaratory policy says. If they ever use a nuclear weapon, the regime will be destroyed. At some point, we need to illustrate that through stronger measures. Exactly when and how we do that has yet to be determined. But we could consider, for example, a more proactive uh, policy on responding to North Korea to be able to destroy their missiles before they're launched. I mean, the good news is, historically, with their Scud missiles, each launcher had probably eight to 10 missiles. So even if they've launched their first missile, we could still, if we knew where the others were stored underground, destroy many of them. But we would have to be prepared to operate quickly and to do that with precision and to have excellent intelligence. And those are things that we can and should be working. I've always argued that uh, if you want to deter North Korea, one of the most effective things you could do is to tell Kim Jong-un, we know that at two o'clock yesterday afternoon, you were located here. If we know where he is, we have the potential to go after him. And that, that doesn't have to be offensive per se, but simply to let him know that we can identify his location. Now, we better be right if we do that. But that is something that we could do. In order to do that, we need to enhance certain kinds of capabilities that, that we have. We need to reevaluate our strategy. And those are things which hopefully are coming out of the Biden review, but we don't know which. Note that we don't need to destroy North Korea's nuclear weapons in a preemptive attack tomorrow. He's not threatening U.S. cities tomorrow. By, with an attack, but he is threatening. 
And so just as he threatens us, we need to be in a position where we threaten him so that he realizes that if he ever uses a nuclear weapon, he is in deep, deep trouble. We've only got a few minutes left. Uh, let me wrap up with a question. One of the things that you you all refer to in the, in, in the uh, paper is the poverty, corruption, and inefficiencies in North Korea. And, and just uh, last week, Kim himself said that uh, a new arduous march uh, may be required and may be underway. And uh, there are allusions to famine, et cetera. Could you just comment briefly on how the state of North Korea in that way is going to affect uh, the path forward? Yeah, I, on the, uh, you know, the dire condition that the North Korean citizens are facing, I think one thing we need to make clear and sort of push back on, you know, one theme that people have been pushing is it's because of the sanctions. You know, indeed, North Korea right now is, is facing very dire economic situations sort of a trifecta of effect of, of in last year of the sanctions as imperfectly as, as they've been applied. Most notably, the self-imposed COVID restrictions that North Korea uh, did on itself, including even cutting off state-sponsored smuggling with North Korea. They've uh, really cut off all trade with, with China, which is 90-some percent of its, its foreign trade, Russia and others. They even brought home North Korean officials whose job was to make money for the regime overseas. And then some natural disasters that hit the, the breadbasket of, of North Korea during the growing season. And those three are layered on top of decades of the socialist economic policies, which have been disastrous for the regime and the people. But, you know, on the sanctions, there are no sanctions on food, medicine or humanitarian assistance. There are no U.S. sanctions on that. There are no U.N. sanctions on that. And there are specific carve out paragraphs where they emphasize that nothing in those rules and regulations and uh, laws should be construed as impacting the provision of food aid and uh, assistance. So the sanctions you know, are impacting the regime finances because of the UN sanctions. Those are impacting economic activity by North Korea as a response to North Korean violations of previous resolutions. But South Korea tried to offer rice. The U.S. tried to offer COVID assistance, et cetera, in 2020. And before that, we've been trying to offer assistance, and North Korea is the one that rejects it. So as I believe the White House spokesperson recently said, the, the conditions of North Korea are the fault of North Korea, not uh, the U.S. or the sanctions. You know, there, there is a debate over humanitarian assistance. You know, any government, like an individual or an organization, has finite resources. So you tend to want to provide assistance to those that are not only needy, but are willing to take steps to prevent it from requiring it again. So if you have a country that had a natural disaster of a typhoon or tsunami, whatever, it's a one-off deal, just as some house, some family's house burns down. It's a one-off deal. North Korea has been refusing for decades to implement the economic changes that would make them eligible for assistance from international financial institutions. And people, donors tend not to want to donate to someone that's threatening to kill them. So I place the blame, uh, you know, at Pyongyang's feet rather than at the feet of sanctions. Bruce Bechtel, please. I don't know if you all have had a chance to read it yet, or, or if you've had a chance to read it, Jeff. Brad Martin wrote a really good article about that, what Bruce was just talking about a couple days ago in the Asia Times. 
are the North Koreans in tough times? A absolutely. They're, they're, they're in really, really tough times. And as Bruce said correctly, a lot of this they brought on themselves. I think a lot of it over paranoia because of COVID. And Scott Snyder's about to re release an article on that, which, which is very good too. But the only thing I would add to that is is that when folks are, are comparing this to what happened between 94 and 98, no, it's not that bad. Not yet. I mean, they, they lost anywhere between 680,000 people, give or take, to 1.5 million people in four years, just starved to death, you know, including units in the Army up in Hamyangbukdo and the northern provinces. They tended to take care of their people in Pyongyang, and then the priorities went down after that. And, of course, even as age started coming in, the big priority was to the Army and the elite, and the Army were living off a lot of, but not completely, but having their stuff enabled by, uh, by largely uh, stuff that was coming in as aid from the outside. So that was the worst. Are we there yet? No, but everything that Bruce Klinger talked about is true, and they are in big trouble right now. I don't think we know because Korea is such an opaque country and an opaque society, and they've closed themselves off. I don't even think we will know for years how bad, how hard this has been on their country, because they're not letting us see, obviously. But I think this is huge. Not as bad as the first arduous march, you know, between 94 and 98. And uh, Bruce Klinger and I were, were in D.C. arguing with each other's assessments back then. But uh, it's pretty bad. It's worse than anything I've seen uh, since 94 to 98. And that's pretty bad. And I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Our, our time's up. Uh, Bruce Bennett, if you want to make a very brief uh, last comment. Otherwise, uh, I will say my appreciation uh, to the three Bruce's for a compelling paper and compelling comments just now. And uh, appreciate everyone's time. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.